Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. First of all, John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, first, the context. At this point in John's Gospel, we are now roughly about 12 hours from the cross. This command by the Lord Jesus in verse 1 of John 14 that his disciples' hearts not be troubled, and the idea is not any longer. Uh, not that they don't start being, they are troubled. And so he's, he's commanding them to stop being troubled. The Greek word for troubled means greatly agitated with fear and anxiety. It wasn't surprising that the Lord had to say this to his guys. Um, he had just announced moments earlier that one of the apostles was a traitor who was going to betray the Lord uh, in the next hours coming. Uh, that Peter, who was probably the strongest of the group, the unofficial leader of the disciples, that Peter uh, was going to deny the Lord not once but three times. And then the heaviest blow of all in chapter 13, verse 33, that Jesus tells these guys, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't follow me. You can't come with me. Uh, not yet, okay? And that was a blow because they had gotten used to spending all their time with Jesus. Everywhere they went for the last three and a half years, he uh, was there. And uh, so they're crushed. And, and this is the context in which Jesus speaks these words. Don't let your heart be troubled. All these bombshell revelations that he had just dropped on them, and it has really uh, caused fear and anxiety to grip their heart. Now, right after commanding them to stop being troubled, Jesus quickly follows that command with a promise, a promise that's designed or that was designed to comfort their hearts. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, guys, this promise by Jesus has both a prophetic and a cultural application attached to it. And there's so much here, I'm going to break it into two parts. But let's look this morning at the prophetic application, and then next week we'll look at the cultural application, and in many ways they dovetail. They, they, they fit together, all right? So we see in the context, next I want to look at the controversy, the controversy. You may not realize this, but this is the first place in the New Testament where the rapture is alluded to, where the rapture is alluded to. I've labeled this point in our outline the controversy because there are many professing Christians who don't believe in the literal rapture of the church. They believe it's allegorical. Or they believe that the verses we say relate to the rapture, that's the second coming, they say. Look, I know many of you here are seasoned Calvary folks, and you know we've talked about the rapture many times before. But for the sake of those who are newer and for those watching online, bear with me. I'm going to build this lesson around uh, five questions. The first one is, and some of these are very simple, very basic that you, many of you know the answers to, but first of all, what is the rapture? What is the rapture? The rapture is a sudden snatching away or catching up 
of Christians off of the earth to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17 is one of the classic, pas classic passages on the rapture in the New Testament. Verse 18 forms uh, a, another statement of comfort. But 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, for the, Paul said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be, listen, caught up, hold on to that, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Here comes the comfort. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Um, maybe Paul was picking up on what Jesus said in John 14. Because Jesus used this the teaching of the rapture to comfort his disciples that night in the upper room. In verse 17, though, of 1 Thessalonians 4, the verb translated caught up is the Greek word harpazo. Harpazo. In Acts chapter 8, verse 39, and folks, if you have seatbelts on your chairs, fasten them. We're going to go through a lot of stuff this morning, okay? Uh, more than you're going to remember, my notes will be online uh, this, later this afternoon or early tomorrow morning. So you can write the references down, uh, but, you know, if you want to just listen, you can always go back and, and review, especially at the end of this study. We're going to be listing some things, and I'm just going to fire them out because we don't have time to go through and explain every one, okay? But the Greek verb translated caught up, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, harpazo, that same Greek word appears in Acts 8.39, and is used to speak of Philip being snatched away from the Ethiopian eunuch. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 4, uh, it describes Paul being caught up to heaven. Because the word rapture can't be found in the Bible, many Christians, many groups, refuse to believe that the rapture is a biblical concept. And while it is true that the word rapture is not found in the English Bible, it is found in the Bible. What do you mean? Well, it appears in the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, the New Testament, all right? And the Latin verb rapio was used to translate harpazo, which appears in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And um, that is the, the Latin word rapio that we do get the word rapture from. So it depends on what translation you're reading from, okay? Uh, but the rapture is a concept that definitely appears in the pages of Scripture. There are three places in the New Testament where the doctrine of the rapture is clearly mentioned. Many other places it's alluded to, but I'm going to give you the three it's clearly mentioned. First of all, again, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 17, we just looked at that. Secondly, and this is the one that escapes most Christians, this is the one most Christians overlook, or don't realize that the rapture is in view here, and that's our text this morning, John 14, verses 1 to 3. Let me read it again, where Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen now, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In these verses in John 14, Jesus introduces the concept of the rapture. 
by promising, by promising his disciples that even though he is going to be leaving them for a while, he's promising them, I'm going to come back for you someday. And not just for those 11 guys in that upper room 2,000 years ago. This applies to all his people, all those who believe in him. Uh, the church, his bride, is in view, right? That he is going to come back for his bride at some point in history. That from that moment on, we will always then be united with the Lord and never separated from him ever again, is the idea. Okay? Now, how do we know that Jesus is talking about the rapture here in John 14 and not his second coming? It's because this promise is in keeping with Jewish wedding custom. That's why I got to come back next week, all right? I'm trying to not get into it too much because I want to save that for next week, but I can't help but dovetailing a little with it, all right? How do we know this is the rapture that's in view? I'm coming for you. Some, that could be the second coming. We know it's not talking about the second coming because it gets into Jewish wedding customs uh, where the bridegroom at one point comes to his bride's house and takes her with him to his father's house. There's a reason he does that. We'll talk about it next week. But he doesn't come and stay where she is. He comes, gets her, and takes her to be where he lives now. And that's the idea. Of course, in this context, the Father is God the Father. The house is heaven. And we'll talk about that more next time. Now, thirdly, beside John 14, 1, and, 1 to 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, the other classic New Testament passage on the rapture is, of course, found in 1 Corinthians 15. And let me just read verses 51 to 52, where Paul said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die as Christians before this event takes place, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. All right, question number two, what, or excuse me, who does the rapture affect? Oh, we just alluded to it. The rapture is the bodily resurrection of all true believers in Jesus Christ who have come to saving faith during the period of time we call the church age. The church age began on Pentecost, Acts 2, 2,000 years ago. It will culminate with the rapture of the church, all those people who came to saving faith in that period of time are called the church or the bride of Christ. Now, you have Old Testament saints. They're going to make it to heaven, okay? You're going to have tribulation saints. They're going to make it to heaven. But this is a very special group of believers called the bride of Christ. Those that have gotten saved from Acts 2, Pentecost, to the rapture of the church. But listen. Not only will the rapture affect all those Christians that have already died and are in the grave, it's also going to affect those Christians who are still going to be alive when the rapture takes place. So not just those who have died already in Christ, but it will affect those of us who are still living when the rapture takes place. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 talks about how that, you know, then after these uh, saints are resurrected and, and caught up to meet the Lord in the air, uh, in a microsecond, okay, uh, those of us who are alive and remain upon the earth will also be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
Please don't confuse the rapture of the church with the second coming of Christ. A lot of Christians do that, and they do it because they do not believe in the rapture. Don't go to the Bible with preconceived ideas. Because then you're going to read Scripture to try to prove your point or what you believe instead of just letting... Now you're engaging in what's called uh, eisegesis and not exegesis. Exegesis is taking from the passage what God has put there. Eisegesis is reading into what, what you want it to say. We have to be careful not to do that. You have to come, when you open your Bible, before you even start reading, say a pr simple prayer, Lord, open my eyes to the truth that you've placed here in your word. Jesus said his, his Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. Take advantage of that uh, promise. I do it every time I open the Bible for my devotions. But there are two entirely different events. The rapture of the church and the second coming of of Christ. Uh, at the time of the rapture, Jesus Christ comes for his church, for his church. And he doesn't even come to the earth. He just comes halfway and we get zipped up and meet him in the clouds. Okay. So we kind of meet the Lord halfway. Okay. I don't know if that's where that saying came from, but all right. Uh, but the second coming is where the Lord Jesus comes with his church all the way to the earth to establish his kingdom, right? They're two entirely different events. Very important um, that we understand that. Uh, question number three, why is God going to rapture his church? Why? What is the real purpose of the rapture? There's two reasons, two main reasons. First of all, our physical bodies must be glorified. And secondly, God will not punish the righteous with the wicked. Let's look at the first one. All right. Why is God going to take uh, rapture us off the earth? Um, someday as believers? Well, first of all, because this mortal, this physical body can't inherit heaven. It wasn't designed for heaven. It would be like if God said, from now on, you're going to live in the ocean, and but he's not going to change this body. I'm going to have to live in some kind of a deep sea outfit, right? With the oxygen tanks stuck to my back or, or feeding me from some other source, right? So when God wanted to create creatures that lived in the ocean, he gave them bodies that were made for the ocean. When God wants to take us to heaven, he's got to give us new bodies that are designed for heaven. And that's what Paul said here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 53. Let me read it to you out of the NLT 2nd edition. What am I saying, dear brothers and sisters? Excuse me, what I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in a blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died in Christ will be raised to live forever. And we who are living at the time of the rapture will be transformed as well. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. And you, you understand what he's saying here. Folks, we are redeemed, right? As believers. We're not fully redeemed yet. Read Romans 8. Our soul and spirit are redeemed. These physical bodies are still of the earth. They're going to go back to the dust of the earth if we wind up dying before the rapture. Paul says there's coming a day when our, well, our physical bodies, in fact, the whole fallen creation is yearning for the day when they are redeemed. We will get our redeemed, glorified bodies at the rapture when we jettison 
these bodies of death with our fallen natures attached to it, and we are made brand new. Uh, we have a glorified body, no sin nature. Sin will never be a problem. Temptation will never be a problem from the moment the rapture takes place for the rest of eternity. It's just important that we understand this, that, you know, God is, is going to fully redeem us at that moment. And so uh, we're looking forward to that. So we have to be glorified. That's one purpose of the rapture. Our bodies have to be transformed. Number two, though, God will not punish the righteous with the wicked. Now, for this one, I'll have you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is talking about the coming judgment. Now, this is a worldwide judgment. The only two worldwide judgments that will ever take place in the history of the world. One was in the days of Noah, and the second is coming, called the Great Tribulation Period. All right? And Paul is talking about this coming judgment upon the world of the corrupt rebels and so on. And uh, this is going to be a worldwide judgment. You can read about it in Revelation 6. Through chapter 19, right? But he talks about it, verse 2, he says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The term day of the Lord is an eschatological term. It's a term of judgment, the judgment coming in the last days. So you yourselves know, talking to believers, that this worldwide coming judgment is going to come like a thief in the night. For when they say, you should read 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verses 2 through about 11, I think. He jumps back and forth. But they do this. They say this. This is for them. But us, he, he separates believers from unbelievers. Okay? For when they say, the people of the world, peace and safety. They're looking for a Messiah, aren't they? He goes by different names. But the world is looking for someone who will rise up and take charge of the world and fix all of its problems. If you're religious, a Messiah would fit into that category. Uh, Jews have a Messiah. Uh, New Agers have a Messiah. Uh, some of the Muslims have a Messiah, the Mahdi. Of course, we have a Messiah. We're not looking forward to his coming the first time. He's already come. We just celebrated Christmas. We're looking for him coming again to fix this fallen world. Right? But when the world says, oh, our Messiah is here, peace and safety, then sudden destruction is going to come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they're not going to escape. God's going to judge them. God's going to judge them. Verse 9, God did not appoint us, though, is the idea, to wrath, judgment, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, therefore comfort each other. With this idea, basically, is what he's saying. What idea? Well, the idea that Christians are not going to be punished with the wicked. That's why the rapture is called the blessed hope, I think, in Titus. One of those verses that alludes to it, but not clearly defines it, okay? It's not a blessed hope, and hang on to this thought, if we have to go through the tribulation period. Well, what is the blessed hope, then? See, this is the, the, the teaching of the rapture, which was very big when I first got saved 40 years ago. But for many churches, it's fallen on hard times in the sense they don't even 
mention it anymore for a lot of reasons. But this teaching is designed to comfort us. Jesus used it on the night before his crucifixion. And then, of course, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly, the saved, out of temptation. You could translate that tribulation. Maybe we could paraphrase great tribulation. The Lord knows how to deliver his people out of the great tribulation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So guys, very simply, the rapture is Jesus evacuating his church, his bride, off of the earth before pouring his judgment, his wrath out upon this Christ-rejecting world during the tribulation period. This judgment will cleanse the earth of the earth dwellers. What are the earth dwellers? That's a technical uh, eschatological phrase found in Revelation about 11 times, I think. It denotes people who have made this earth their home. We all live on the earth. But as Christians, this is not our home. We're passing through to our home in heaven. We are pilgrims and sojourners. We are not earth dwellers. Earth dwellers are those who are militant unbelievers. I mean, the thought of anything biblical sickens them. They, they might be spiritual in some ways, but not biblically spiritual. They don't gravitate to the Holy Spirit, okay? But these are the folks who have made this life, this planet, everything. You try to talk to them about spiritual things, talk to the hand. They don't want to hear it. You know? Try to witness to they shut you down. They're this soil that the seed fell on that was so hard it couldn't penetrate. And the birds of the air, the demons came and plucked up the word of God out of their hearts. Part of the reason that God's going to judge the world and all the rebels on it is because he's going to cleanse it in preparation for Jesus returning at the end of the tribulation period to establish his kingdom. Question four, when will the rapture occur? Well, first of all, let me say that the rapture is imminent. Imminent. Which means it could happen at any time. In other words, nothing needs to happen prophetically before the rapture of the church takes place. Again, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Even though evangelical Christians over the years... Now, let me just say this first of all, okay? With, the, with regard to when will the rapture occur? Uh, I don't believe most evangelicals, maybe no evangelical, I like to think that, would ever try to set a day and an hour for the rapture to happen, right? There's a lot of people that have set dates and hours, but they haven't been evangelical, evangelical Christians, okay? Um, true, spirit-filled, mature evangelical Christians are never going to present a day and an hour when the rapture will happen. Because we know Jesus himself said, I don't even know the day and the hour. Only the Father knows. And that also gets into Jewish wedding customs. But listen to me. Just because we don't know the exact timing the rapture will take place. Doesn't mean that Christians over the centuries haven't debated each other, sometimes rather, you know, uh, robustly about general times or about when the rapture is going to happen. And this 
general speculating has given rise to four main views concerning the general timing of the rapture. I'll fire them out to you. You can go online and you can dig them out on your own if you want to study these. There's four main views with regard to the basic general timing of the rapture. First of all, the pre-tribulation rapture view. That's where people believe that the rapture will take place before the tribulation period begins. Then you have those that believe in the, in the mid-tribulation rapture. It's their view. And they believe some time at the midpoint. When the midpoint comes, the rapture will happen. And, and the church will be out. So the church will go through the first half of the tribulation period, they believe. Uh, then you have the post-tribulation rapture people. This used to be very, very popular um, 100 or so years ago. Okay? Uh, these are the folks that believe that the, rap the church will go through the entire tribulation period, and then as Jesus is coming back to the earth, we get raptured, which is the dumbest thing. Honestly, what is the point? If he's coming back, why do I get it zipped up and then come right back down? What's the point of that? No, I shouldn't say dumb. I mean, you have some very, very brilliant people, like Walter Martin. The original Bible answer, he held to that view. So it's not stupid. I just don't get it. But that's me. Then you have a rapture view that is relatively new, maybe the last 25 years, called the pre-wrath rapture view. These are the folks that believe that the church will go through the first half of the tribulation period and then move on into the second half. And somewhere in the second half of the uh, of the of the tribulation period will get raptured. So we're going to see maybe three quarters of the tribulation period before the rapture takes place. Now we here at Calvary Chapel, and I speak not just for our church here uh, in Oak Grove, but uh, the Calvary movement across the world. Uh, those of us who are Calvary Chapel pastors are committed to a pre-tribulation rapture eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy theological term that means study of last things. Study of last things. The study of the, the events that will take place right before the rapture and then later on the second coming, that kind of thing, okay? We here at Calvary Chapel are committed to a pre-tribulation rapture eschatology. In other words, we believe that Jesus will come for his church before the Antichrist rises to power and signs a peace treaty with Israel. You can read about that in Daniel 9, I think it's around verses 24 to 26, maybe 27, okay? When the Antichrist, and I believe he's alive right now, I just don't believe we're going to see him rise to power. I believe he's alive right now. You say, well, how old do you think he is? People ask me that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he's a toddler. He might be in his 20s, maybe even his 30s. I think he's, I think he's just about ready to be revealed. I believe the rapture is that close, okay? But when the, so I believe he's alive right now. Maybe you've seen him on television. Maybe he's been interviewed. Uh, he could be a world leader now in some capacity or somebody that's very well known. But when this man eventually rises to power, he's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel, probably will allow them to rebuild their temple. When this peace treaty is signed, we will now move into, and I say we, now we won't be here. We, I don't believe we'll see the Antichrist. But, but the world will now move into the last seven years of world history, human history, as the world has known it. 
Because after these seven years, Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom, and the world is going to be nothing like it is today. Nothing. Uh, you're tired of, if you're tired of earthly governments and the corruption, then you should be excited that Jesus is coming back soon to establish a kingdom of righteousness. When the Antichrist signs his peace treaty with Israel, seven years will pass and Jesus will come back with his church to establish his kingdom. And uh, that's important that we understand it. That's the second coming. Rapture, we get zipped up to meet the Lord in the air. We go then to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. Seven years, we come back with him. Check out Revelation 19. We come back with him to the earth to establish his kingdom. And again, guys, I'm a firm believer that the church will not go through any of the tribulation period. I could be wrong. That's my firm belief, at least right now. That the rapture will take us off the earth before God's wrath, God's judgment is poured out. One of the reasons I believe this, and we can go on for weeks talking about these things. I don't want to do that, so don't get nervous. Um, why do you feel that way, Pastor? That the church won't be here? Well, there's different reasons. I think I'll give you two, I think maybe three. I forgot how many I've got here, but... Uh, one reason would be the promise that Jesus gave his true church in Revelation 3. Why don't you turn there? One of the reasons I don't believe the church will be here for the Great Tribulation period is because, one of the reasons because of the promise Jesus gave to his true church in Revelation 3. Let's read verses 8 and then verse 10 where Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia, that's the church that's in view here, I know your works. See, I have set before you, listen, an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers. Jesus promised his true last day's church. And if you've been with us in our Revelation study, each of these seven churches were literal churches that, that uh, existed in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. Asia Minor is uh, modern Turkey, okay? They were literal churches. Don't miss that. But each of them represented a period of church history as well, among some other things. The first three were not going to make it to the end, till when Jesus returned. He, he tells them things like, you know, hold fast, uh, you know, you're, you're going to be martyred, but be faithful unto death, and so on. The last four, he speaks to in the present tense, uh, signifying they're going to be around when he returns. The last four, Thi uh, Sardis, Thyatira, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Sardis represents the Protestant church, Thyatira, the Roman Catholic church, Philadelphia, the evangelical church, and Laodicea, the apostate liberal church. And that's all I'm going to give you on that because you got to move on. You can go into our Revelation study and check it out. Philadelphia represents the true last days church. I'm not saying that they're not Christians in the Protestant church and even some in the, in the Catholic church. The liberal churches I have a problem with, that there's anybody there. Jesus is knocking to get in. Read Revelation again, chapter 3. See, he's not even in this church. This, this church. Um, but I believe that Philadelphia does represent the evangelical church of the last days. And he is promising her in these verses that he is going to keep her from the tribulation period. The Greek could be translated, deliver her out of. 
deliver her out of. Not keep her through it. That would be the Greek word dia. No, this is ak, out of, okay? He's going to remove her from the earth before the tribulation period begins. And we went into this in detail in a revelation study. Uh, again, there is coming a period of time uh, of great worldwide judgment called the tribulation period. It morphs into the great tribulation like a woman in labor starts out light, ends with hard labor. That's going to be the tribulation or the judgment of God upon the world that's coming, okay? But I believe that Jesus is promising his true church that he is going to deliver us out of that um, before the, the, uh, the Antichrist is revealed and before the tribulation really takes hold, okay? Then we read after that promise in Revelation 3, verses 8 and 10, we read in Revelation 4, verse 1, After these things, John said, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Guys, I believe this open door is a door of deliverance. I believe this is a door of deliverance standing open in heaven, Revelation 4, verse 1, and uh, a door that God now evacuates his church off of the earth and brings us through this door into the security of heaven before his judgments are poured out upon the earth. Remember now, this is the beginning of verse or chapter 4. The rapture takes place. Chapter 6, beginning, that's when the judgments of God begin to get poured out. All right? But secondly, John says, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. Now, guys, that sounds like rapture language to me. Because both the classic passages on the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, talk about a trumpet sounding at the very instant the rapture takes place. It's also implied in John 14 in the marriage Jewish wedding customs. So again, we'll talk about that next time. So in the three passages in the New Testament that clearly speak of the rapture, all three of them have trumpets attached to them. Something else that's very interesting to me about the book of Revelation. Do you realize that in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the church is mentioned 19 times? Starting with chapter 4, verse 1, she is not mentioned again in the entire book until we come to chapter 19, when we see her returning to the earth with her bridegroom as the bride of Christ. She's now returning to the earth with her bridegroom to set up the kingdom, right? She, she's not mentioned again until chapter 19 in the second coming. Where's she been? Well, the Lord came for her, and she disappeared off the face of the earth. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, look, she went off the air because she's no more broadcast about the church. She went off the air. Why? Because she went up in the air. <laughs> the Lord raptured her. We don't see her again until we see her coming back as the bride of Christ. Chapter 19, right? So after the church is removed from the earth at the rapture, guys, the scene now shifts. I'm talking about Revelation chapter 4. The scene shifts in heaven, to, to heaven, I should say, in Revelation 4, where the church, now listen, once seated with Christ in heavenly places spiritually, Ephesians 2, 6, right? 
All of us spiritually right now are seated with Christ in heavenly places. But now after the rapture, we see the church seated in heaven literally with the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, chapter 4 of Revelation, before any judgments, are, she's seated securely in heaven. Off of the earth where all the judgments are going to be poured out. She is seated safely with Christ now literally in heaven before Revelation 6 begins the judgments of God being poured out. Guys, all of the also I want you to understand this. In the book of Revelation, there are recorded numerous judgments of God, which he unleashes uh, upon the inhabitants of the earth at different times. They fall into three categories. The seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and finally the seven bowl judgments. And they cover from Revelation 6 through uh, 16, I believe. Don't miss this. All of these judgments fall under the same category of the wrath of God. All of these judgments fall under the category of God's wrath being poured out in the world. What is his wrath? It's his judgments. Okay, his judgments. And he pours out his wrath on the earth dwellers, militant Christ rejectors primarily. And yet with regard to the body of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, he says to us, for God did not appoint us to wrath. The world, yes, they've rejected Christ. Why should we be punished with the world? We've accepted Christ. For God did not appoint us, his church, to wrath, judgment, but to obtain, listen, salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Be careful. The salvation that's being talked about here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 isn't salvation from hell. We're already saved. What he's talking about is how he's going to save his church from the wrath to come. The judgment that's coming upon the unbelievers. He is going to save us by rapturing us off of the earth before God's wrath, his judgment, uh, is poured out during the tribulation period. Furthermore, as we come into chapter 6, Jesus begins to break seals from this scroll, right? Every time he breaks a seal, a judgment of God comes upon the earth. The first seal he breaks unleashes somebody that some think is Jesus. He's, he's got a white, uh, he's riding a white horse, he's wearing a white outfit, right? Now, come on. We all, those of us who are older, I just celebrated 65 years on this earth. I remember the old black and white uh, cowboy movies, right? It was so simple back then, wasn't it? So simple to pick out the good guys and the bad guys. How was that? Good guys always wore white, white hats, white clothes, white horses. Bad guys always wore the black hats, the black clothes, and the black horses. Wore, drove, uh, drove, rode the black horses, right? This is a deceiver. He's wearing many crowns. But the Greek is not diadema, the crown of a king, or the crowns of a king. It's Stephanos. It's the crowns of a conqueror. This guy is a deceiver. That's why he's wearing white. Whenever Jesus appears, people say, what's Jesus? Jesus is up in heaven breaking seals. What do you think? He broke the first seal, jumped on a horse, and rode down here to be the first? To, no. Jesus is up in heaven. This is a deceiver that's unleashed with the breaking of the first seal, the Antichrist. 
How do we know it's not Jesus? Because every time Jesus is mentioned in the book of Revelation, what is the weapon he's carrying? A sword. Represents the word of God, right? This guy's carrying a bow with arrows, right? So he's a deceiver. And, um, but I, what I want you to see, though, is as God said uh, through Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, that the church of Jesus Christ has not been appointed to wrath. God is not going to punish us with the wicked. If the Antichrist is the first judgment of God's wrath upon the earth. Of course, the world thinks he's great when he first shows up. We know he's a deceiver because of what Scripture says. We know he's bad news, and before it's all over, he's going to kill millions. But the world of the deceived, full of earth dwellers, they think his appearing on the world scene is the best thing that ever happened. Here's our Messiah. And he is going to initially set up a kingdom where there's going to be peace and prosperity. But right about the time the world says, ah, peace and safety, then God's judgment falls in the form of sudden destruction, which will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they won't escape, right? If he's the first judgment of God upon the earth during the tribulation period, and we have not, not been appointed to wrath, right? He's the first, you know, unleashing of God's wrath on the earth. And we have not been appointed to see any of God's wrath. Then we can't be around when the Antichrist is finally revealed. I mean, he might be alive somewhere right now. I'm talking about when he is finally revealed as a world leader who's going to establish a one world government. We're not going to be here to see. I don't think we are. Again, I could be wrong. But from my study of scripture... I believe we are not, I know, again, I believe he's alive somewhere on the earth. But I believe that true Christians, and I mean those belonging to the body of Christ, won't see him rise to power, uh, won't see him establish a one world government. We have to be gone before he is revealed. How do I really know that? Well, there's different ways. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. There's something hindering his appearing. There's something hindering this man's rise to power. What is it? Paul talks about it in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8. Let me read it to you. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Well, you better believe that. The Antichrist is not going to just show up one day and everyone's going to go, oh, wow, we, we, you know, and just blindly follow him. The world has been prepared for thousands of years to receive a world leader like this. You don't think COVID is fitting into this? this is, there has never been a time in the history of this planet where the nations of the world in lockstep all followed the advice of the experts in lockdown and so on. A few didn't. But... This is, this is the mystery of iniquity, which is already at work. Satan is hard at work conditioning people, brainwashing people. That when the Antichrist shows up and wants to bring the world together for our own good, it's always for our own good, isn't it? You know? It's always for our own good. Um, be careful of somebody that says to you these words, trust me. Okay? It's a red flag. Trust me. The devil loves that phrase, okay? I don't trust anybody unless I can find it in God's word, okay? But we're being conditioned, folks. 
And I told First Service that we got to wear these dumb masks. I'm please, I'm not putting anybody. Down. I wear the mask too. I got it right here, right now. You know, I put it on because I want people to feel comfortable and all. But you know, we're all like these little sheeple that just are following along. No, I think those of us who are Christians, we're not dumb. We're going along to a certain degree. But you have people in the world. When I see a person driving in their car alone, wearing a mask, I have a strange mixture of pity and contempt. What is wrong with you? There's nobody around. Or they're out jogging on a bright sunny day and they're all by themselves. They're wearing a mask. You know? I would dare say they wear that mask in the shower. <laughs> I don't have first hand knowledge of that, but they, on some people, it's like, you know, but they, we would say they drunk the Kool Aid. They drunk the Kool Aid. They're being conditioned. And it's only going to be a short step from this conditioning to receiving the Antichrist who's going to bring us together for our own good. Trust me, right? But the mystery of, of, of lawlessness or iniquity is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What's in view here is the Holy Spirit working inside the church. The church is the moral conscience of society. That's what's restraining lawlessness from completely taking over. But once the Holy Spirit inside the church is taken out of here, the church is gone, the rapture, Holy Spirit is still going to be here. Because millions upon millions of people will get saved during the tribulation period. Nobody can get saved without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will be here. But what's restraining evil from just having a field day and just like a flood coming at people is the church. The Holy Spirit in the church. When the Holy Spirit removes his church off of the earth, verse 8, then the lawless one, a title for the Antichrist, will be revealed. So the church is gone, then the Antichrist is revealed, whom the Lord will consume eventually after seven years with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Read Revelation 19. So I believe, guys, that the scriptures are teaching that the Antichrist won't be revealed and rise to power until the church is removed from the earth at the time of the rapture, which I believe is in view in Revelation 4, verse 1. I right, question 5. How close are we to the rapture? Well, the rapture of the church could happen at any time. There are no prophetic events that need to take place before the rapture uh, happens. There's no events that need to take place first. I believe that uh, that's because, and I believe Jesus wanted it that way. Why didn't he give us anything to look for with regard to the rapture? Because I believe he wanted us to always be watching, vigilant, right? If the Lord would have told us the exact day and hour that the rapture would take place in history, most Christians would probably have lived a very sinful, very worldly life until about three hours before, we'll say. Then they would have gotten their faces and done some heavy-duty repenting. The hypocrisy, right? The Lord purposely didn't tell us the, the moment, the day and the hour of the rapture, um, because he wanted his church, his bride, to be constantly looking for his return. And if we're always looking for his return, we're not going to get entangled in the cares of this life, Right? Didn't John tell us that? 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3, um, where he talked about, you know, everyone who has this hope, what? The hope of what? The hope 
that the rapture could take place at any moment purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. See, if I believe the rapture could happen at any moment, and I do, I don't want to be doing worldly stuff. I don't want the Lord coming back and find me involved in some worldly pursuit. It, it, it keeps us pure. It keeps us uh, vigilant is the idea, right? Remember that Jesus said, an evil servant says, my master delays his coming and then gets involved with drinking and beating the servants and so on. He said that in Matthew 24, verse 48, and Luke 12, verse 45. Uh, any Christian who says the Lord, I've heard professing Christians say, well, I believe that the Lord's coming in the rapture, but not for a thousand years. Well, where do you get that from? The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't give it any time frame. And anyone who has that idea, that promotes sinful living. If you're living as if the Lord could come back for his church at any moment, that promotes holy living, is the idea. Now, guys, listen, and I'm bringing this to a close, okay? Even though there are no prophecies that must be fulfilled before the rapture takes place, there are a lot of prophecies that have been and are being fulfilled that point to the second coming of Christ. You realize in the Old Testament, 333 prophecies of Jesus' first coming. His second coming, over 500 in the New Testament. Over 500, okay? Which means, and I believe, because I'm pre-trib, I believe the rapture will happen at least seven years before the second coming. All right? Now, if the signs of his second coming are everywhere, and I believe, and you believe, the rapture is going to take place seven, at least seven years before that. Well, again, if we see the signs of a second coming everywhere, we know the rapture is getting very near indeed. Like my pastor, Chuck, used to say, right? One day he was out with his wife at the mall, middle of November. And um, he turned to her at one point and said, uh, wow, Thanksgiving's getting really close. So well, why would you say that? Well, I see the signs of Christmas everywhere. In those days, they set up for Christmas in the middle of November. Now it's like September, okay? It had a little more impact as an illustration back in those days, right? Chuck's point was, if I see the signs of Christmas everywhere, and I know Thanksgiving precedes Christmas, Thanksgiving must be getting really close. The same idea pertains to what we're talking about. No signs with regard when the rapture will happen. Second coming, a lot of signs. You can't turn on your tablet and check the news without seeing things being fulfilled that point to Jesus' second coming. If the rapture happens before that, the rapture is getting very close indeed. So let me just end with this. I can't give you the timing of the rapture, obviously, but what are some of the prophecies that had to be fulfilled before the second coming? Because that is just as good, okay? Uh, let me just fire these out to you. These will appear on our website uh, this evening or early tomorrow morning. Uh, first of all, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, which happened in 19, May 14, 1948. Uh, that was prophesied Ezekiel 37. Secondly, the return of Israel to the land in unbelief. That's prophesied in uh, Ezekiel 36, verses 24 and 25. Uh, God prophesied that he was going to bring his people back to the land, and they would be reborn as a nation again, right? But when they would be reborn, they would be a secular people. There'd be no breath, ruach, 
in them. No spirit. Today, Israel, they have some zealous Messianic Jews uh, and some Orthodox Jews. But for the most part, it's a secular state. Okay? That had to happen. Number three, the ecumenical movement spoken of in Revelation 17. Before Jesus returns, there's going to have to be an ecumenical movement that's going to bring all the religions of the world together in preparation for a super world church, one world church, okay? And that, that we're seeing it right now. Uh, I did a study where I talked about how the Roman Catholic Church under John Paul II saw itself as the mother church of all religions. It was working very hard even in his day to bring the, the, the uh, religions of the world together under one umbrella um, in his mind for unity, but we know it fits into Bible prophecy. Number four, Christendom had to become increasingly more apostate before Jesus comes back. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. We're seeing that. We're seeing the church of Jesus Christ becoming more and more apostate. Um, I'll leave it at that, okay? Um, there are the faithful remnant, but the church of Jesus Christ, when it says things like, um, Muslims can get to heaven without receiving Christ because they're sincere um, and a lot of other things that are just absolutely against biblical doctrine we can see we're getting very close number five the worldwide increase in spiritism many people thought that as science uh, progressed we would the world would become more and more secular it's not it's becoming more and more spiritual not in a good way not in a good way, uh, not the Holy Spirit, right? But the idea is that what what uh, these um, atheists didn't take into consideration was that, because they don't believe in God, that God built us with uh, a God-shaped void in our heart. We hunger innately for spiritual truth. And if it's not satisfied with the truth of God, people will look to satisfy it in all kinds of places, and they are right now. It's the rise of spiritism uh, in, in the world today. And uh, we see it all around us. Number six, the drastic decline of moral standards. You can check out 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5, or you can turn on the evening news. Same thing, okay? Number seven, the rise of, anti, uh, of the anti-Christian spirit. John spoke of in 1 John 2, 18. Um, there are Christian cults. Christian cults really got their start in the... Uh, 1800s, um, and that's when they began to show up on the scene. We did a study on this. If you're interested, I'll, I'll point you to it. Uh, that This was all the groundwork being laid for the final events that would bring in the Antichrist, the world church, and then ultimately the return of Jesus Christ. But but the rise of anti-Christian uh, spirit, uh, Christian cults. Uh, number eight, the formation of the European Union. This is going back a little bit, but we, we saw Europe coming. Now, of course, there's Brexit and things like that, and different nations are pulling out. But the, the, the mindset is there of bringing nations together um, that we could have a one-world government and so on. Um, number nine, the alignment of nations spoken of in Ezekiel 38, which will attack Israel. These nations are coming together now. Uh, Turkey was supposed to be involved in this group of anti-Jewish nations. and But for years, they were pro-West. They were pro-West. Turkey has now become anti-West, pro-Muslim. 
So they have fallen in line. And uh, the stage is set. You can uh, Google an article written by Hal Lindsey some time ago entitled Talking Peace, Preparing for War. He gets into this, okay? And then, guys, just to round out this very quickly, we could add to these uh, things, uh, you know, that are, that are um, uh, pointing to the return of Christ, earthquakes in many countries, threat of worldwide famine, uh, increasing hostility among nations, nations rising up against nations, Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. Uh, the failure of governments to maintain law and order and to suppress terrorism creates a climate for a world dictator to rise and take charge. Uh, the building of nuclear arsenals uh, could possibly be what is in view uh, in Revelation 13, verse 4, when it talks about who is able to make war with the Antichrist. Or what Jesus said, lest those days were shortened, no flesh would remain upon the earth. Talking about the tribulation period, right? I mean, for no flesh to remain upon the earth, nuclear weapons would have to be in view there, which were not uh, invented until, what, maybe uh, 80 years ago or so? How about the advent of television, telecommunications? The Bible talks about events that the whole world sees at the same time, like the two witnesses that the Antichrist kills, quote-unquote, but doesn't really, kills them, I should say, but God resurrects them from the dead after three days. Um, the whole world sees that happening uh, all at the same time. Now, you know, before TV was invented, uh, that was impossible. Of course, now with telecommunications and all satellites and all, we can watch something happening on one side of the planet. We can all watch at the same time. It's just commonplace now. And finally, uh, what about the technology needed to give everybody that would take it a mark? The mark of the beast. What is it? You can't, people without it during the tribulation period won't be able to buy or sell. Well, the technology has recently been developed, and I say recently, within the last 20 or so years, uh, some of you have pets that have that little rice chip uh, was injected under the skin with all the information, the dog's name, owner's phone number, the address where the dog, a pet lives, and they just scan it and they can find, you know, so that information is placed, uh, and they've developed, there was a company called Verichip, excuse me, Applied Digital Solutions, who came up with something called Verichip. I don't know if they sold to some other company, if they're still around. But this was a, a chip, a microchip, that they developed that could be placed underneath the skin of a person and have all their records, all of, you know, so you get in a car accident and they're unconscious, they have no documentation on them, the police rush over, they scan the hand, and boom, everything comes up, who they are, their medical history, so on and so forth. Oh, people are lining up to take this. They don't realize it's the Antichrist that's going to use it, Right? A lot of information, right? Let me close with this. I am told, haven't been there, but I'm told there's an inscription on a gravestone in an old British cemetery not far from Windsor Castle. It reads like this. Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. Well, a visitor who read that epitaph thought about it and then added his own lines. Okay. Here's what he said. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. <laughs> Can I get in front of that question? 
Which way are you going? Which way are you going? We have a blessed hope. Because our, our Savior came down, died for us on Calvary's cross. Three days later, rose from the dead. And yes, ascended back to the Father and is preparing a place for us. But he's coming back to get us. And I believe before God really pours his judgments out upon this evil world, he's going to take his church out of here. Are you going to be one of those that goes with him? Are you going to be the bride of Christ? You can be. Just receive him as your Lord and Savior right now into your heart. And when you do that, when the trumpet sounds and the angel shouts and you hear the Lord's voice say, come up here, this world is going to be a thing of the past. And from that moment on, you will never be without the Lord's presence. You will never know anything but joy unspeakable, full of glory. You'll never get sick. You'll never have an anxious thought. You'll never taste death. All because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a hill right outside Jerusalem. And it's available to everyone. Come to him now. After we finish, come on up here. And we'll pray with you. If you want to talk some more, fine. We'll pray with you to receive Jesus Christ, give you a Bible if you need one. So come on up and see us. Father, we thank you. And I know, Lord, we covered lots and lots of information, give people grace to retain some of it. But if nothing else, to realize that your coming is near, even at the door. The signs of your second coming are everywhere. And I believe that the rapture will take place seven years before your second coming. So the rapture is getting very near. Give us grace, Lord, to keep looking up, to get our eyes off of this world more than we ever have before, that we start looking up. Our redemption is drawing near, and we want to be ready. We want to run this race strong. We want to run all the way into your arms and hear you say someday to us, well done, good and faithful servants. You were faithful on the earth. Now, Enter into the joy of your Lord. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.